Welcome to Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jonas Duss, co-founder and U.S. CEO of Kaya Health. During our conversation, Jonas spoke a little bit about a McKinsey report titled The European Path to Reimbursement for Digital Health Solutions. I really thought that the report could come in handy for our European listeners and entrepreneurs. You can find the link to the report in the show notes for that episode. In this episode, I got to speak with Elena Mustatia, CEO and founder of Bold Health. As with many startups in the health and care industry, Elena went through her own struggles in IBS before starting Bold Health. But before we dive in, I met Elena at Frontiers Health Conference in 2018, which is when Bold Health was officially born. Elena struck me as a bold, yes, pun intended, and determined person on a mission to change the landscape for gut health overall. And now we jump to my conversation with Elena. Hi, Elena. Welcome to the DTX podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to even create this interesting company? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Eugene, for having me. Great seeing you again and being here with your listeners. So my story into digital health starts from when I was little. Probably as far as I can remember, starting school, I started having digestive symptoms of all kinds, especially a lot of abdominal pain, stomach pain, went through dietary changes, had this lifestyle where I was like a very good student, very stressed out about schoolwork and all of that, which I think really affected my uh, digestive system. And I grew up in a family where everybody had some form of digestive condition which I took as normal. I thought this is how humans are. But when I grew up and developed what I now know is IBS in my first job, uh, when it started really annoying me because it really affected my performance, my quality of life, my ability to be intimate with my partner and so forth, then I really wanted to do something about it. So I did cure my IBS. Uh, I now feel really good. I haven't had any issues for probably seven, eight years now. So I wanted to do the same for other people who might be living like this and don't get the care they need and don't get solutions. So what we do at Bold Health, we develop digital therapies for digestive disease, where we help people self-manage, self-care, self-treat their digestive conditions, starting with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. That's the initial kind of drive on my side. But then I met my co-founder three years ago. He's a doctor and he's very driven to solve patient issues. And chronic illness is, is the biggest cost driver and biggest burden for patients as well. So we were both very passionate about solving deeply medical problem for individuals. I actually come from a business background. So uh, after graduating um, with an economics degree from Dartmouth in the U.S., I went into management consulting in Dubai, working on a number of Middle Eastern projects around strategic growth. Then I went into investment banking, moved to London with JP Morgan and spent time in the TMT practice. So advising, especially technology companies around M&A and uh, financing. So getting closer to the technology space, I really loved it, loved the dynamism of it, the, the fact that it was solving so many um, of our problems today. So then I uh, became an investor with a fund called Atomico, a VC fund based in London, started by the Skype um, co-founder. 
who's very mission-driven to solve some of the biggest problems and support entrepreneurs, especially European entrepreneurs, in doing that. And my coverage at Atomico was in part digital health. So I got a chance to look at the pioneers, I'd say, of digital therapeutics, the first wave, especially those uh, UK players, many moving to the US, like Sleepio, Silver Cloud, Hinge Health. Got a chance to be on the team when we invested in Hinge Health and learned about that journey. So very much Hinge Health has been an inspiration for what we're doing at Bold Health. So hopefully we can step into their uh, shoes uh, one day in that pathway because it's uh, very exciting what they achieve in just a few years in the MSK space. So we're hoping to do the same in digestive. So I'm going to dive back to when you were having the challenges right with your health. And sounds like you were hacking yourself back to health, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't. When was the light bulb that went off that you can actually impact people's lives? And I'm assuming with digital therapies, when did it go off? Is it while you were already at Atomico and getting the the VC experience and you said, well, let me rewind back because it's now been X years and let me create something. This is the time. Yeah, no, it was uh, was way back in my first job when I was in consulting. So I had a pretty bad lifestyle. I was traveling a lot across time zones. I wasn't sleeping much, working long hours, going out a lot. So that's, I think, stress had a saying and poor lifestyle. I didn't even realize I would start my day drinking a Diet Coke and thinking that was fine to just put that into my stomach, empty stomach. So only when I started having health problems, I kind of was like, okay, maybe that wasn't Right. So what I did then is, and I was surprised, I found a detox retreat in Thailand, actually, that does a lot of what we kind of do in our program. So it was part behavioral modification, part cognitive therapy, part just taking a break, giving my body a break. And then we would do a lot of uh, yoga, physical exercise, you know, being in the sun, being by the sea, which is very healthy doing relaxation practices like massages, having a very clean diet. So actually with juices, so that probably rejuvenated my microbiome. And lastly, I changed my job. So I think that was also another factor. I wasn't enjoying my job very much. So having that time to take a bit of a break and do something that I'm more passionate about, and that's more the cognitive piece. That's more the psychological part of the illness when you might have a life situation where you're not very happy and you'll probably have some sort of back pain or stomach pain and so forth. Then the lifestyle piece, I I kind of gave a, a shock to my system with really good inputs of exercise, food, sleep, and relaxation. And and I think yoga also played a big role in that where, again, we did very kind of digestive system friendly yoga and asanas that were specially designed to to help heal the gut. So that completely got rid of everything, really that one week intervention. But it's very much the same principles. So in the case of irritable bowel, it's a functional condition. It's a dysfunction of the gut-brain link of the nervous system of the gut, the enteric nervous system. So by applying uh, behavioral therapies and relaxation therapies, like deep abdominal breathing or yoga or hypnotherapy, where you listen to a very deep relaxation exercise, 
that's when the nervous system of the gut regulates and that leads to the function of the gut being regulated. So it's exactly the same principles and mechanisms, which I was lucky to discover by mistake. I thought I was going really on holiday, to be honest, because I needed a break after my stressful job. And then I actually kind of completely restarted my health. So then with digital therapeutics, rediscovered the same principles. And we realized this is a scientific actually framework that is proven, you know, especially through cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for IBS. It's really a multi-modular, a bit of a framework and an integrative care approach. It's not really, doesn't just look at emotions or doesn't just look at stress. It also does certain exercises, lifestyle modification, education. All of it is this care package that we learned, you know, it's also science-based, it's proven in clinical trials, it's considered gold standards, it's accepted by doctors. And we weren't just, you know, talking about some woo-woo therapy, some alternative therapy that would be really hard to accept in the market. It was something that we could go at as a, as a scientific framework and also something that's been done, especially in the behavioral uh, mental health space, right? So there was that acceptance of digital therapeutics and early kind of pathway of success. So all of that combined inspired us to solve this problem in digestive health. And part of this podcast is also getting to know the people, the trailblazers like yourself, right? I guess the positive part, what you mentioned, you went to Atomico and were part of, you know, funding Hinge Health. So DTX as a term was already established. The DTA was already in the scene, but yet, you know, the funding mechanisms and how much did the Atomico experience give you to actually start the company, get the initial funds to prove certain milestones, Talk to me a little bit about that funding mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, sure. Before that, if I may make a very slight digression. So when I was looking at Hinge Health, one thing, even though digital therapeutics existed as a term, Hinge Health never called themselves, or not when we invested digital therapeutics, because they said in the end, the patient heals themselves, their own therapy, because they have to actively do things. They have to do exercises. They have to do physical exercises, go through the CBT in the program, talk to their coach. It's not about someone, you know, this magic pill that gets inserted somewhere in your system and you're magically better. So I really like that idea that you create the digital care pathway and provide a structure and the content that the patient then takes to become the active healing ingredient. So it's that self-care pathway that we enable. I really, really like that. And yeah, there is that alternative to say you're pure play digital therapeutics and you're the kind of mechanism of action and you get an FDA stamp on it and that's it. But it's not as easy. The patient really is that active force in the whole care process. So besides that, speaking of fundraising. In some ways, uh, I had to relearn everything from scratch to become an entrepreneur. And I was very lucky that my co-founder, he's an experienced entrepreneur. He's been doing startups since he was 12. He's done multiple digital health startups. He has built many digital products. He's very product oriented. So I was very lucky to be with him who had like the kind of street intelligence of having done it before. And I had the theoretical really background doing some, you know, business school courses and all the VC kind of theory and what startups should do and what entrepreneurs should do. And I would say 50% of that is kind of theory. There was some inspiration I got, you know, for example, what are meaningful KPIs? What is meaningful growth trajectory? What is meaningful kind of financial projections you should aim for in growth? 
But besides that, I had to really learn from scratch. And my uh, network and knowledge was very much Series A onwards. Um, so at a point where you already have product to market fit, where you have a developed product that is selling, that you have like confidence that it's going to make it too, and you require much more capital to scale that model that already works. Whereas we started completely from scratch. So I had to learn a lot about the, you know, the angel landscape, early stage grants, journeys, convince a lot of early stage investors that had very different investment drivers than Series A onwards that we did at Atomical. So it was helpful. I'd say it's more helpful from this, this stage onward where we more enter product to market fit and growth. Uh, but so far it's been, you know, it, we really had to make it happen. We really had to hustle for the capital we went after. And GI wasn't very much of an established kind of segment within uh, digital health and health tech. So being early movers, there has been an element of convincing people, educating, making it, you know, the kind of condition area that it deserves the attention and making the kind of category it deserves to be because it's highly prevalent. So we know 75% of the population have some form of GI symptom in any given week. And then about 30% have a diagnosable long-term digital uh, digestive condition with IBS affecting about 15% of the population. So hugely mass massive conditions, very common, very distressing to large uh, kind of productivity losses associated with it, large distress. A lot of the mental health burden is associated actually with digestive uh, discomfort and illness. But it's a bit of a hidden topic. It's a bit taboo. We know our families have all sorts of these digestive problems, but we don't realize the rest of the world does. So the fundraising journey has been relatively slow, but that actually helped us because we only raised as much as we needed at every step of the way. We managed to be extremely capital efficient. And we had a model where we had a global team. So we tapped into the best, cheapest talent, uh, that matrix with a basis starting in London, but we worked with developers from around the world, from Romania, from Nigeria, where my co-founder is from, from the Philippines where he studied and so forth. And also we've had advisors and key opinion leaders that because we were early stage, we actually, you know, they never wanted us to pay them or anything like that, but they brought huge value to us. So we've been lucky, I think, with our fundraising journey, but it definitely hasn't been easy or straightforward. Only now, digital therapeutics, maybe it's entering the, the hype stage, but I think it, it very much matters how you position yourself. And you mentioned earlier, right, kind of GI was not a sexy topic. There was not much knowledge about it. And that's only, I think you started the company sometime in 18. So in the short amount of time, I think GI came to light, right? I think there are some companies like Mahana and a few others. So maybe talk to me is the GI, for lack of a term, sexiness, <laughs> three years later, is it helping? Is it now the, some of the competitors and maybe there's different approaches to all of this? So maybe you can contrast a bit and talk about this. Yeah. So I'd say GI is going to happen soon enough. So in, the, in two, three years time where we're going to have large adoption and accessibility for GI care. And then also some of the players are going to mature, including ourselves. 
we benefited from one of the very, very early players. Well, two things. So the microbiome space has been around for a while, but it hasn't reached really scientific evidence. It hasn't been proven. There's been a lot of money poured into it. Potentially one day things will line up. But for now, we don't have very good evidence of how it works. And if we really can apply you know, probiotics or other things to improve our general health, I think people are trying not just the gut health. So microbiome was one that opened the gates, I would say. And then an early player actually out of Germany, Caracare, I think already brought the topic in the fundraising circles and conferences and so forth. And actually some of our investors invested in us because they had due diligence, car care, maybe they didn't build enough conviction in that company. But then when they heard about our model um, and how we think about it and our solution, they're like, okay, this is actually the right path. And we know this market is significant. The market need is significant and unmet, very prevalent and so forth. So it it will definitely kind of um, become a big area. And when they met us, they had confidence to finally invest. So in terms of um, other players, so yeah, you'll have a few that are taking more the FDA pathway within digital therapeutics, similarly CBT-based or hypnotherapy-based solutions that you package into pure digital intervention that you then take to the FDA as a typically class two device. So that's the pathway that most of our competitors are taking. That's Mahana, MetaMe Health, and Pair Therapeutics also has in their pipeline a GI solution for IBS, but not sure at which point they're actually going to bring it to market. But all of these are in the FDA process. Mahana just announced their FDA approval. Soon they'll be in the market, likely. So taking more of the prescription pathway, as I explained for Hinge Health, you know, it's more of a digital care pathway. CBT itself is not typically a FDA-approved intervention or therapists are not FDA-approved. So we say this is, um, you know, enforcement discretion. People should be able to access the self-management tool in the end and program. So for now, we're not going that FDA pathway, but soon, I think, you know, quickly things are, are moving in the space. It's great that you contrasted some of the players and some of the components, but I'm actually very curious because for our listeners, I think digital therapeutic might sound, well, digital and to therapeutic, but what is that experience like, right? So uh, maybe kind of walk us through if you're an end consumer slash patient, uh, what is it, you know, obviously can't see what it looks like, but at least walk us through it. Yeah. So what we did was to partner with a clinician at University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Melissa Hunt, who developed a light touch CBT program for IBS. So actually how she got there was that she was treating, she's a psychologist and she was treating people for depression, anxiety. And she saw this pattern that almost everybody was complaining with gut issues. So then she saw that link between your gut and your brain and between gut disease and brain health and behavioral issues. Uh, and the stress. So that's how she developed a number of interventions, one for IBS, one for IBD, and some others in her work. And the good thing about Dr. Han's work is that the CBT intervention she developed is low intensity. So it can be very much a self-care, self-driven program where the patient goes through the content, the different things they have to do, the education, and don't need so much therapist guidance. So this is very good from a digital perspective because you can more easily translate it into a fully digital intervention, which is what we did. 
So we considered for a long time, you know, whether to add a coach to the journey or some sort of human component. But what we said, let's first prove that as a digital intervention, it can be effective and let's see how effective it is for how many people it works and then decide whether to add more human elements and really try to make it very scalable, very digital, self-driven program. But what we did and we innovated was to create a digital assistant, virtual coach for IBS, if you want to call it, that is meant to be a bit like a specialist nurse in IBS that understands this program of care and can guide the patient through the steps on the care journey. So obviously we onboard users through a, a series of a chatbot conversation, videos, animations, audio. It's a very multimedia experience. The patient comes to the app. We assess their uh, state. Do we have this baseline data of uh, how are they faring from a GI symptoms perspective? What's their mental health like? What's the quality of life? And a few other scores. And once we do that, we put them through the program that is a bit individualized, personalized to their symptoms and the type of IBS they have. Then we have uh, six modules corresponding to six weeks of uh, CBT uh, program. Each module is subdivided in sessions that you can do, you know, at different times during the week. Again, very interactive between the chatbot and um, audio video. And that really teaches the CBT model of the link between emotions, thoughts, behaviors that may or may not impact IBS symptoms and teaches the, the patient to identify negative patterns that could make them be unwell and reverse those for better kind of mental state and physical state. So you go through these weekly modules for the six weeks, and then there's daily exercises. At the beginning of the program, patients are asked to create a program of care that fits around their schedule so that every day they build in a tool, an exercise, a practice that regulates the gut-brain link, so relaxes the nervous system of the gut to regulate the function. So these are exercises. They're being taught across the CBT program through each module, things like progressive muscle relaxation or how to do um, IBS-specific yoga exercises or breathing and so forth. And then they start applying that progressively day by day and doing even cognitive exercises or journaling techniques. So that's over the six weeks is a pretty intensive program, uh, but it is flexible around the patient's schedule and then we have a maintenance program. At the maintenance stage, that's a long-term program. So we know IBS is a long-term condition. We do aim to get people after those six weeks from, let's say, severe IBS to mild or moderate and functional and, and doing very well, but they might still need some support. We obviously have a community and have support in the app. They can access that, but they can continue to use the tools to do the daily practices or you know, if they want weekly practices. The way uh, to give a parallel, the way you would use a mindfulness app, you would also use the app to do daily exercises that you might like, you know, 10 minutes of hypnotherapy that gets you in a really good mind and, and body state around gut kind of uh, sensitivities and symptoms. So yeah, there's that like initial journey plus the maintenance. It's interesting because you talked about, you know, self-care, but that's still a little bit of the need of, you know, guides and coaches. You know, it sounds like I know where you're going with this, but I'm actually curious, especially you guys are not taking today a PDT or prescription DTX route. So where do you see the docs, the nurses, and even health coaches in your model longer term? Yeah, so longer term, it will depend 
on the system where we deploy the solution. Um, so it will be a bit on a case-by-case -case basis. So for example, we're working with the NHS in the UK where we can create a supported program with NHS staff. So specifically, there's the IAP program for increasing access to psychological therapies. There is an IBS track with CBT for IBS where they have actual, you know, human coaches or trained that psychologists, counselors to support patients with this type of intervention. So then the patient will use our app for self-management and they would have some form of human support, maybe, you know, 10 minute check-in every two weeks with the assigned coach counselor. So that's more on the, the nurse therapist side of things. As I said, our intervention is low intensity and light touch from a human intervention perspective. It doesn't need that much. That said, a health coach can be valuable in keeping the patient engaged, keeping them motivated to stay on the journey and so forth. So that is something we do plan to integrate, especially for our B2B model for serving employer populations or health plan populations. Now, in terms of clinicians, nurses, and so forth, that's where we look at more at the prescription pathway. So in the NHS, again, we're looking more at primary care referrals and prescription where we expect GPs to prescribe Zemedi, and there we are getting integrated into the specific systems or kind of EHR platforms they have and prescription platforms. In a very fragmented system like the US, this is less um, obvious and straightforward. So then whenever we do an integration with a health plan or an employer, we are going to integrate within their possible system. But the good news is we don't need a clinician or we don't need a nurse necessarily prescribing or part of the care pathway. It would be nice. We know that, you know, evidence shows us that when a doctor prescribes digital therapeutics, it has better engagement and with that better outcomes. And we're, we're going to work on that, but it's not necessary. So first of all, we're, we're going direct to patient, whether that is even through their employer, but we would still, you know, market to get the, the patient, the sufferer to download the app. At the moment, also doing, you know, B2C, we're present in the app store. We've gotten to over 10,000 organic users simply through discovering us in the app store. And then NHS, we're already testing the more clinician-based uh, referral and recommendation at the moment soon prescription once we get on the more official digital formularies. So it is definitely part of the journey and we adapt to the system and the payer, the client setting. Super interesting. And I guess, again, it's still relatively young stage as a company, you're still discovering. So you've built a product that's clinically validated based on your experiences, but also science back, as you talked about with Melissa Hahn's work. What was your original, at least, hypothesis on the business model? Because you mentioned now, you know, direct-to-consumer with 10,000 downloads, the NHS, you know, one-payer system, and then you even mentioned employers. So what was your original hypothesis when you were starting the company, and how has it evolved your thinking to date? Yeah, it was exactly the same. So we see in the end what we do, it's consumer health, but the way you've reached the consumer, the patient is through different distribution channels along the care pathway. So I think it also depends very much on condition. Because we started in IBS and the nature of IBS is that it's partly managed in the medical system, but a lot of it is self-management, is over-the-counter medicine, is people doing self-discovery of all sorts of solutions from alternative to probiotics to 
drugs and painkillers. So in that sense, we've always seen IBS as having some direct-to-consumer play. However, our business development focus was always on, on B2B2C because we want to reach populations at scale. So we knew that you want broad coverage of a population so that it's more accessible for patients, you know, at no cost or at low cost. So we're always going to work on that. And, you know, I guess the NHS is our biggest market where we're currently doing that. We um, are now working with the Primary Care Association Network with 5.5 million lives coverage. So currently deploying at that population level, and, and we want to do that across many other settings. So that's the B2B model. But in the end, you know, it might be through employers, it might be through benefits programs, it might be through private insurers or health systems or any other system where patients are and are seeking care for this condition. And then we're focused on getting coverage in those respective distribution channels. Now, in terms of, I think the benefit of really putting an app like ours in a B2C setting, giving it out to patients is significant because it allowed us to test with thousands, now tens of thousands of, of users and patients in the real world and see how they use the app, see what their needs are, what their questions are, what other features we need to build or remove really to simplify the care journey. It allowed us to not only run clinical trials, and and we just um, published our our first RCT results. Actually, it's in preprint, but we have really, really positive results from our first study. And we ran a completely virtual trial. We were out there with patients from day one. That allowed us to build a brand. That allowed us to build a, a followership and volumes in the market and data that allowed us to build our product and iterate and make it the best GI digital therapeutic in the market. So whenever Mahana comes with their approval or others, their real life experience will be limited. And also the ability to iterate will be limited because you have a relatively fixed FDA approved product. Whereas we've been there with patients and really listening to users and so forth. So that's why B2C is really important. And now we're showing that people get so much value that they're paying for the program. So we also have really high payment conversion rates because we're learning, you know, it really is a huge need. It's an unmet need that people even B2C would pay for, which is quite rare in healthcare. So it allows us to do a lot of experiments and have a lot of learnings, but ultimately we are going for B2B. One more thing I'm going to say on this comment on, it depends on the condition area. So for inflammatory bowel disease, for example, It's a much more, let's say, in in the prescription space of things. It has prescription drugs. It's a life-threatening condition. There's no joke how you treat patients and what you give them. So there, you know, it makes more sense to have, for example, more regulated product and make it doctor prescribed. And then that becomes more of a B2B model. So it depends. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. What is your pricing strategy for Zemedy? Do you base it on current pharmaceutical therapies pricing? Do you base it on replacing the work that a healthcare provider would be doing without your digital therapeutic? Or do you price it some other way? Thanks, Brian. This is the golden question following uh, definitely Brian's work around pricing in, in digital therapeutics. I'd say there's two main aspects to pricing and what we do. 
One is how much value can you generate that is profitable for the payer? So providing ROI to any payer you serve and then pricing is also adjusted to that and uh, to the context and then benchmarking with the market, right? So if we came up with the $10,000 pricing because we have the most unique or the world's first CVT-based program for IBS and whatnot, you know, that doesn't mean it would sell because someone else will have it at 2000 or 200. So you always have to play within the limitations of the market. But then I think our pricing work is continuous. And I think based on each setting, so in the NHS, they'll have different cost structures and different therapy costs as well for the comparison to the real world face-to-face therapy or to the drugs. Therefore, our pricing will have to be system adapted and still provide an ROI to the NHS. They will always want to see cost savings. Even if you dramatically improve patient care, you have to prove the cost saving. Same in the United States with employers and health plans. So it's about providing that ROI. So with that in mind, pricing for DTX tends to be somewhere between 500 to 1,000, maybe a bit over 1,000, depending on the level of support. So our program for now is very limited support because it is very effective in digital format. It's in slow intensity, as I explained. So therefore, you know, we expect on an aggregate basis to be somewhere between 500 and 1,000, depending on, on the setup and the level of support. But then what we're going to do realistically is to run health economics and analyses on every deployment. We look at claims data, we look at productivity gains so that we can show that whatever pricing we have, it will generate savings, it will be value additive to the organization. Lastly, in terms of pricing model, how we see even though there's population-based pricing, there's usage pricing, we gravitate towards usage pricing. So you know, per active user per month, for example, a model, but somehow front-loaded because the nature of the program is that it is most important and most effective, most impactful in the first two to three months. So therefore, we would have a higher pricing around $150 in the first three months. And then for maintenance program, you'll have a much lower price Uh, for that ongoing journey. And then really, I think about it as an aggregate, you know, landing per user, depending on the number of weeks somewhere, you know, between 500 to 1500, depending how engaged they are in the program. To follow on Brian's question, and you alluded to this earlier, that you have a pretty good conversion in your direct-to-consumer model. So as a consumer, once I convert, what am I paying as a consumer? Yeah, so we maintained uh, for now a model that's recognizable in the app store. So these typical subscriptions, you know, where you can pay for monthly, for three months package or for a year of access. We nudge people towards the year program. But yeah, you know, someone can sign up. It's really a subscription. We are changing that soon right now. We're still testing. And at the moment, yeah, we're working on making the app as accessible as possible for the broader public. And then we'll really the kind of the real pricing model will be at B2B level where, you know, all costs will be built in and and so forth. At the moment, we're trying to make it really, really price accessible, especially given COVID. Studies came out that the minimum 15%, 13, 15% of GI populations are seeing an increase in their symptoms. So we know the, the need is becoming more acute now. So we like to make it as accessible as possible. 
So I have a feeling I'll know the answer to this based on our discussion already. I mean, there are a number of molecular therapies available. I, again, I don't know the effectiveness of it, of them, but, you know, Lassitron, Rifeximin, I'm not even sure pronouncing it right. But companies like yourself are obviously designing consumer experiences with the combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and even human beings surrounding it. I have been asking this question, where do you see pharma in all of this? Are companies like yourself will say, well, to augment this digital therapy, you may need to take a certain pill, or do you see yourself bought out in three, five, seven, whatever years as a companion to a molecule? So I, I definitely think what we do is a category of its own. There is a play for complementary additive effect on disease management and on outcomes where both the drug therapy and the digital therapeutics might have a level of efficacy and outcome. But I wouldn't see what we do, um, a companion where you just, you know, you get some data, you get some patient information, you do some remote monitoring, and that's it. No, we're very, very focused on therapeutic impact and outcomes. And uh, I'd say it, it depends on condition area. So in something like IBS, we pretty much replace drug therapy. The intervention is so effective for such a large percentage of the population with such effects that most likely patients will get off drugs or will use them less on a more acute basis and so forth. And we know the effects are maintained as well, that three months, six months, three years even, we've seen the positive effect remaining for the patients under these interventions. But then in something like IBD, there's more of a place for both the drug therapy and the digital therapeutic to act together. So in something like IBD, CBT programs can help with symptom management when improving quality of life and also equipping patients to better live with their IBD through patient education, through tracking and remote monitoring, which you'll always do through a digital therapeutic. But then we can act on symptoms like pain, fatigue, urgency, depression, anxiety, reducing rates there on mental health. So you affect certain condition outcomes and symptoms, and that helps with the general program of care that the patient might be under. There's definitely a place for collaboration. We also know the highest results are together between drugs and the, let's say, behavioral therapy. So there's a study in IBS, for example, that showed that CBT alone had 70% efficacy, but if you added standard of care drugs, it went to 80% efficacy. So drugs kind of brought in a bit of a margin, but why not, right? So you, you definitely want to combine if that's possible. So we are, we are discussing a number of pharma companies. We're open for collaboration. We're looking for co-development partners. And it's a case-by-case -case based on condition where that makes more or less sense to combine with the pharma therapy. But ultimately, my vision is that digital therapeutics will become a pipeline of digital drugs that pharma will have, you know, stem cell therapy and molecular therapy, well, the therapeutics and then digital therapeutics and so forth. And that will very much become integrated in this like palette of therapeutic options. It won't be just a companion. I think there's so much more potential than that. So I predicted your answer. Thank you. And finally, you know, I mean, entrepreneurship is, is not easy. What is your why? What gets you up every morning? So I'd say it's a bit of a inherent dissatisfaction with how people are currently treated. When I learned about 
functional conditions, especially of which IBS is one. And we have, you know, migraine and pain syndromes and endometriosis and autoimmune, where there's a very high degree of disability, of distress, of comorbid mental health problems. And these are really impacting people's lives and sometimes render them unable to work, unable to care for their family, to do what they love. And then we tell all these people in the standard medical system, we can't do much for you, or you're fine, you're not going to die. We don't know what's wrong with you. All your labs come back normal. And then the person goes home and they're desperate and they don't know what to do and their state gets worse. And then they have another comorbidity and so forth. So I found that really inaccessible that for so many people, it's probably 30% of people that have some form of functional condition and autoimmune, we don't have solutions. Drugs don't really work for them. Research has really not gotten so far to have anything meaningful or, or with sustained results. And then I just learned that you do have these therapies that actually are highly effective, highly helpful, and they have pretty immediate impact. You know, for someone that's been suffering for 10 years, they can do a, a therapy for a month or two, and that will dramatically improve their well-being, their quality of life, and heal them as a whole, right? It's not just about the physical symptoms. Your mental well-being gets better. Your comorbidities will probably improve as well. So then it's really unacceptable to me that we don't better support this class of patients and we completely leave them outside of the medical system because they also pay taxes. They also have medical insurance. And mostly these are women that are left outside. And this definitely drives me knowing how much women are kind of underserved and forgotten in many ways by modern medicine. So we're building this new part of building this new way of serving underserved patient populations that can really have better access to effective therapies that we already know they work. So why not make them accessible. Amazing. And certainly your passion exudes. So thank you very much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. It was great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borovich, and catch you next time.